All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Exchange. Thank you, dude. Uh, so glad you guys are here this morning. My name is Josiah. It's nice to be with you guys. Do me a favor. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, also, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We want to get you one so you can follow along with us. But Philippians chapter 2. If we could get the lights turned on, that'd be awesome. But Philippians 2. John chapter 6 as well. If you want to turn to John 6 for like extra credit, that would be great. So John 6, Philippians 2, uh, before we get started, let me just say again, welcome. So glad you guys are here. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that candy cart bin. Uh, thank you for bringing candy uh, to help us with our Easter outreach. If you didn't bring candy, just think of the children, you guys. I'm just kidding. Um, don't feel bad at all. We, uh, we are doing like this Easter outreach on April 13th, and so we're filling, I think, four to 5,000 Easter eggs. We're doing an outreach next weekend. We're filling goodie bags, passing them out to some neighborhoods nearby. So um, thank you for bringing candy. We need a lot. So it's very important. Um, also, just I want to make sure you guys are aware of this. Love Deerfield is this week. It's this, this Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Love Deerfield for us is a time where we're partnering with another church, West Pines Community Church, and uh, we're going to love and serve Deerfield. And so uh, we're actually having a missions informational meeting uh, immediately after service right out these doors in our middle school room. So it's like a, it's, we're treating this as a missions trip. We're, like, we're not going somewhere overseas. We're doing this in our own backyard. And so uh, the missions informational meeting is immediately after service. Just want to make sure you guys are aware. All right. Hey, Philippians chapter 2. John chapter 6, like I said, if you want to turn there as well, uh, here is where we're at today. So uh, we started the book of Philippians like eight or nine weeks ago. Uh, we are taking our time. We looked at two whole verses last week. If you are new, I just want to kind of catch you up so you know what's going on. Uh, Paul is the author of Philippians. Paul, who once persecuted Christians, is now a persecuted Christian, and he's in prison writing this letter. Now, the book of Philippians is an important, an important book. This is the first church plant actually on the continent of Europe. So if you remember in Acts 16, Paul wanted to go east into Asia. And we're told in Acts 16, the Holy Spirit said, no, no, go, go over to Macedonia, which is now, nowadays modern Greece. So Paul planted this church in modern Greece. And this is where the gospel started moving west. And why is that important? Because that forever changes Western culture, Western history. That changes us who live in the West. And the gospel started moving West through the, the church of Philippi and through this letter. So it's an important book. Now we're, we're approaching this book and here's kind of my heart and the theme for this book. We're calling this series a, a colony of heaven because here's the idea. Paul talks about how the Philippians, their true citizenship is in heaven. The Philippian church were actually, the Philippians were actually Roman citizens not every uh, city back then was a Roman colony. So they actually had Roman rights, Roman citizenship. They could own land. They didn't pay certain taxes. There was a lot of benefits to being a Roman citizen. But Paul is saying this, no, no, your first and true citizenship is in heaven. And so he's, not, he's saying this, your goal as the Philippians is to bring Rome to the city of Philippi. But no, more importantly, your goal is to bring heaven to Philippi. Seek not to bring Roman culture, Roman law, bring in heavenly culture, heavenly law, bring in God's kingdom. And so we're approaching this for us as a church is how do we bring God's kingdom to earth? How do we live as citizens of heaven? How do we not live as Americans first, but how do we live as seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Our goal is to live as citizens of heaven on earth. In a sense, each church should be like a little extension of heaven to earth. It should be a culture of heaven on earth. And that is what we're seeking to bring. And here's why this is so important today specifically, but remember, Paul wrote this from prison. Paul wrote this while being chained to a soldier. Paul is in a de demeaning, dehumanizing situation 
where he can't go to the bathroom alone, he can't eat alone, he can't do anything. I mean, he's always chained to this Roman guard. And here he is writing a letter. And as many of you know, Philippians is primarily about joy. And Paul's in prison writing about joy. And he's saying, what happens to you does not have to control you. What happens to you does not have to define you. And Paul is saying, joy is not the absence of trouble, but it's the presence of something greater, and that is Jesus. So Paul is telling us, here's how you can have true joy. Now, here's why this is important. Because our topic today, specifically, is on complaining. <laughs> All right, now, here's, let me explain. Um, last week, and just so you know the context, we read, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's God who works in you. So we talked about God works in, you work out. Now, Paul, in light of that, is saying, here's how you can work it out. Do all things without complaining and disputing so that you may become harmless and blameless children of God. Now, some of you here this morning, you, you hear that this message is on complaining, and your first inclination is to complain. Like, I can't believe the message is on complaining. Gosh, a whole sermon on complaining. Uh, do you know how hard this was for me this week? This is probably the most challenging second section of scripture I had to read and be like, oh my gosh, do all things without complaining. Every time I complained, it was like a flag went off in my heart. Like, ah! It's, so I, I feel incredibly hypocritical um, this morning. Uh, especially, you know, we have a three-year-old, we have a one-month-old right now in our home. She just turned one month yesterday. And so it's like, we're getting a few hours of sleep. She finally has a good night Friday night. And then my son, you know, has the worst night of sleep of his like life, complaining about his shin splints. So I'm like, just go to bed! Like, you're losing in your mind. And I'm reminded at like 2 a.m., like, do all things. I'm like, not all things. You know, there's, there's a side of this where all of us are kind of resisting this. Um, and this is incredibly challenging for me personally. And you might say, again, why a whole sermon? Why is this necessary? Um, we're going to see tons, tons of examples of complaining in the Old Testament and how complaining reflects our view of God, how it's a witness to the world. Not really a good witness, but complaining is a witness to the world in some extent. We're going to see why ultimately God's like, here's why I don't want you to complain, because you have so much, so much to be grateful for. Grateful, grateful for. <laughs> and this is the whole point of Philippians. Be content in all things. Rejoice always. I mean, here's a guy in prison saying, I'm not complaining. He, Paul has every right, and he has moral authority to say, look at me. <laughs> look at my lifestyle, and now do this. So let's read. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. We're going to read it and then pray. Um, so Philippians 2, verse 14. Keep in mind, Paul just said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And in light of that, here's the attitude to have. He says, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Let's pray, and uh, we'll look at this more in depth. Father, we, um, we do just want to thank you. God, I, I know even in my own life, there's a sense of hypocrisy talking about a subject where it says all things without complaining or arguing, disputing. Jesus, I just ask that you would move, that you would speak. God, I, I really do ask that our church would, would bring the, the kingdom and the culture of heaven to earth, that our attitude at work, at home, in the church would reflect you, Jesus, that we'd have a perspective of redeeming things rather than complaining. Jesus, we just ask that this would um, really define us, that people would look at our lives individually in our life as a church and see joy and see praise and see a, a satisfaction, a deep satisfaction that's found in you. So God, we ask that you would um, take this word that we're, we've read and that we're gonna study now, and we ask that you just sear it and burn it close to our hearts, Lord. Let, let it be something that defines us. In just your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. 
All right, I want to ask you a, a question, and it's not a joke. It almost sounds like it, but what does, again, it sounds like a joke, but what, what, what does a funeral and a job interview have in common? Really think about that. What does a, fu- a, a job interview and a funeral have in common? Besides the fact that you feel like you're dying and this is just awful. Like, really, the idea is this. At a funeral and at a job interview, you're both sharing a story. You're both sharing a story of you're presenting someone or you're presenting maybe yourself, but you're presenting someone as honorable. You're trying to like, almost like promote this person or the accolades, but, two, but both from completely different perspectives. So for example, there's a guy named David Brooks and he wrote a book called like, The Road to Character and he talks about a eulogy resume versus uh, a resume. Or eulogy virtues versus resume virtues. Eulogy virtues versus resume virtues. So here's the idea. Um, when you think about a eulogy and someone getting up and talking about someone's life, usually it's from this perspective of, man, they lived such an honorable life. They loved their family. They loved their kids. They were patient. They were kind. They were funny. They are outgoing. Usually those are things you, not, you don't share at a job interview. Usually at a job interview, you're here to promote yourself, promote your skills. You know, no one at a eulogy is saying, man, they're so good at Microsoft Word. They're incredible. I mean, the way they did Microsoft Office, it was like picture perfect. No one talks about that. And, and here's the idea. Um, in life so often, we know, like we know theoretically character is more important, but we really do in reality give more time to developing those skills, those giftings in like life and career than maybe character itself. So if we said, you know, tell me how often you go to a conference or if you take a class on some subject, usually it's to benefit us, our career, our giftings, our skills. A lot of times it's not really in reflection to character, even though we know character is more important. A guy named Dallas Willard said it this way. Uh, He said, the most important thing in your life is not what you do, it's who you become. That's what you'll take into eternity. See, if you think about resume virtues versus eulogy virtues, you're in a sense both talking highly of, of someone, but, but one is completely different. And so here's the idea. I do want to be a church that we're not just talking about skills and getting better at certain achievements and accolades. How do we say, no, no, the same time and energy we put into developing ourselves or skills, how do we put that into developing our character? You know, C.S. Lewis, who wrote Mere Christianity, who I probably quote weekly, and I'm sorry, uh, he said this, remember, we Christians think man lives forever. Therefore, what really matters in those little marks or twists on the, on the central in some inside part of the soul, which are going to turn it in the long run into a heavenly or hellish creature. He's basically saying that the little decisions we make now are shaping us and forming us into the person we become. You've probably heard this like quote before, this saying, or this little poem. I think it's attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson, but I'm not really sure. It says this, sow a thought and you reap an action, sow an act and you reap a habit, sow a habit and you reap a character, sow a character, and you reap a destiny. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you're aware of that. I think that is so true. See, how are we trying to, like, develop character? For us, we don't want to just, like, read a a verse like this and say, that was good. How do we develop this and turn this into a habit, into character? How do we seek? No, no, we want to get this into our lives. We we want to develop this part of us. So we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and the attitude we're going to have is we're going to do it without complaining. Why? It is hard to follow Christ. It, it is hard to persevere. It's hard to live a holy life. It's hard to live a set-apart life. It's hard to live a hospi- hospitable life, a life of generosity. And so he's like, do all things without complaining and disputing. And I want you just for a moment, just for a moment, when Paul's talking about working out your salvation, and here's the attitude to have in light of that, I mean, really think through this. I had to like search this week. Um, what is that thing you complain most about? What's that thing that just gets under your skin? 
Like, really think through that. For me, it's pretty easy. It's just South Florida traffic. Like, I know, I know my weak spot. I don't know why. Specifically, it's like unsynchronized stoplights. That specifically is hard for me. Like, oh, green, go. And the next one, like, red, why, why'd it go red? Like, I can't find a rhythm, right? I don't know what it is down here. There's like no, like, button you land on and it just changes lights automatically. It's just weird to me. Um, but what is that thing for you that just kind of gets under your skin? I read something that I thought that was interesting. Just talks about the, the most common things we as Americans complain about, which I think is so true. Ready? First thing is this, uh, free but slow Wi-Fi. If we go to Starbucks, we're like, I hate this free but slow Wi-Fi, <laughs> right? I know it took time to go to outer space and come back to my laptop, but I'm so mad. Um, we don't like cold food at restaurants, food we didn't catch or make or prepare. We just complain about that. Uh, we complain about working out. Now that we've eaten so much, we're like, oh, I have to work out. That's so annoying. Uh, we complain about just doing the laundry, right? Like we have a machine that does it for us and we still go, oh, I hate doing the laundry. Um, grocery shopping, we're <laughs> more than 10,000 people, this is true, die of starvation every day. Millions of people from hunger and malnutrition and we complain about going to the grocery store. Now we have like Whole Foods apps where you just like type in like, here's what I want delivered to my house. So we still like, oh, I hit the button. I don't want to hit the button. We're bad. Uh, Drive-throughs, you know, for, again, food, it's immediate food. We're like, oh, there's a line. I want my food now. It's unbelievable. Um, the weather, you know, we are terrible at this. Like, oh, it's so hot, I better get an AC. Like we have AC, it's amazing. We complain about it all the time. This one's kind of my favorite. This is the number one complaint, toilet seat left up. And I don't know why in my mind, I, I know I just don't get this. I'm like, just put it down. Okay. Anyways, I know this is not, but we, that's a big thing. Uh, water fountains. I mean, we have water fountains out in the hallway. We're like, oh, it tastes disgusting. It's not even cold. Like, we have magical boxes that produce water. Like, it's unbelievable where we live. There's just common things you're constantly complaining about. And, and here's the interesting thing, too. Like, we, we almost encourage it as a society. We, can, we have complaint boxes. Like, please, complain here. Like, we, I don't know why, but we want the complaints. I just think we people take them and just, like, burn them. Like, no one really does anything with it. But what is this? When he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. So let's define this. Complaining. Complaining simply means murmuring or grumbling. It literally means under the breath. And you know what this is like. Someone says something to you or asks you to do something, it's just that, <laughs> okay, that's the complaints. Under, it literally means under the breath. It's like, I think of Popeye for some reason, right? When he's like, it's magic. I don't know. But this is the idea of under the breath. It's the person where they, there's always something to complain about. Then he says disputing. This is the, the type of person where like they're the arguer for the sake of arguing. Like they might not even believe what they're arguing for, but they just love to argue. How many of you know that person? Like you're taking a side you don't even believe in. You're just trying to argue with me at this point. He's saying do all things without complaining and disputing. So I, I do think this is worth just taking time to like evaluate. So here's what I want to do. Let's identify this in our lives. There's four types of complainers. So I'm going to write them down. They'll be up here. Four types of complainers. One, there's the whiner there is the whiner. When the sky's blue, it's too blue. If the food is good, it's too good. Uh, the whiner for me is the person where you're constantly around, it just kind of drains and sucks the life out of you. Like after a while, you're like, I just can't be around this person. The whiner doesn't even really know that they're a whiner. Like they just, they may, maybe they think they're being helpful, but it's just like sucking the life out of you. I read the story of a guy who went to Pennsylvania looking to move to this little town. And he gets to this little town and he sees like a local, this old wise man in the city. And he goes, excuse me, sir, I'm thinking about moving here. Can you tell me, what is this town like? And the old man said, well, well tell me first, like, where, what, what is your old town like? Tell me about your old town. He goes, my old town that I came from was awful. People are mean. They're miserable. They complain all the time. I hated that old town. He goes, man, this town's exactly like that old town. It's exactly like your home. He's like, thank you. I won't move here, sir. And another week goes by. There's a man who gets off a train, gets off a bus with his family. He finds this old man in the city. He goes, excuse me, what's this town like? I'm thinking about moving here for work. And the old man asks him and says, hey, wh what's your old town like? And he goes, we love our old town. 
I mean, it's beautiful, it's peaceful, the people are incredible. I mean, we, we absolutely love it. He goes, that's exactly what this town is like. See, right, there, here's the idea. Um, there are people who just com- can complain and whine about everything. It's not the place, it's the person. You know, they'll find something wrong with everything and anything. This is the whiner. They can find something wrong with it. And it can be a beautiful day, awesome thing happening, but there's still something critical about it. Next, number two, not just the whiner, you have the martyr, right? This is the person, like, no one cares. No one even sees me. No one said hi to me. No one loves me. This is the martyr. I, I think of Moses. Moses had this martyr mentality. If you remember Moses? Moses goes, God, why'd you bring me out here to lead these people? I, I, I just want to die. God, kill me. Moses asked to be killed. He's like, it's way too hard. Just kill me now, God. And then you have the martyr. You have the martyr. It's like, does anyone see that I do these dishes all the time? These kids don't clean up after them. So, right? Like, there's that martyr mentality you can have. I think the next one's very true as well. You have the cynic. The cynic, I think, defines our generation. This is the one where, like, we don't almost believe anything. Like, someone's like, wow, God's really changing my life. God's doing a work in me. And you're like, yeah, sure he is. Like, what? Like, no, God's, like, been working on my heart. I'm telling you. And you're like, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, I see the change. You're like, do you see the change? Are are you being, like, what do you, there's a cynic. I think this is kind of our generation. I think this is just, like, our culture, our, our state, our climate right now. We're cynical towards everyone and anything. It's almost like you can't enjoy anything. You know, again, the cynic is tough to be around. It's that person who kind of sucks the life out of you. Next, it's similar. It's the perfectionist. Maybe you know the perfectionist. Maybe you live with the perfectionist. By the way, if you're married, I hope you've not hit your wife or her husband at this point in time. Like, that one's you. Don't do that. That is bad. But the perfectionist, this is the person where it's like, yeah, it's good, but it's just not, it's not good enough. Like, oh, like, oh, like, oh you, is that the outfit you're going to wear today? You're like, yeah. Like, why? I'm like, oh, no, I've literally had people ask me that. Like, oh, you're, you're wearing that today? I'm like, yeah. It's like, oh, that's interesting. I'm like, what are you doing? Um, there's the perfectionist. You know, I think of Proverbs 21. It's really funny if you read the Proverbs 21 and Solomon writes this. I don't. Solomon writes this. He says, better to live on the rooftop than with a contentious wife. That's in Proverbs 21.9. I think it's like in verse 19. He writes, better to live in the desert than with a contentious wife. Like I picture Solomon writing the Bible and she's like, what are you doing on the roof? Get down from there. And he's like, never mind. Better to live in the desert. <laughs> like this keeps going. This is like that perfectionist can just kind of get under your skin in this way. Right? And, and here's the thing. All of us, to a certain degree, are one of these primarily, or if not all of them. Honestly, think about that. I mean, I find myself in all these categories in some way. This is one of those things where you're studying all week and you're just like sweating. You're like, I don't want to give this message because I'm all of these things. You know, um, I, I do want to encourage you. I asked my wife, to <laughs> I, I, I don't know, ask someone in your life to say, hey, talk to me about this. You know, do you see complaining in me? Do you see the spirit in me? And, and obviously, the answer is yes for all of us. So I asked my wife to rate me, one to ten. One being like, I am the worst complainer ever. Ten, like, hey, you're pretty good. I, I don't want to give my number because I, I complained about it when I got it. Um, <laughs> she, she literally gave my number, and I'm like, really? That number? I'm like, how about, and she's like, you're complaining. I'm like, ah, it's terrible. Um, so here's, here's why this is important, okay? This is not just for us to like walk through this and, and just talk about this. Here's why this is so important. So here's the why. I love that Paul gives us the why. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Why? Why? Verse 15, here's the why. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God uh, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul is saying, do all things, why? So that you may become blameless and harmless children of God. This is so important. So here's three thoughts. Why is complaining, like this is not just like a small topic, like, oh, it's a cute topic. No, like why is this topic of complaining detrimental? Like this is not just some like, oh, that was like, you know, an interesting thing to talk about complaining one Sunday. Why does this actually do harm, harm to our witness into the world? Here's the first thing. Um, First of all, number one, complaining harms people. Complaining harms people. 
Notice that phrase, that you may become blameless and harmless. So when I complain, I'm harming. Keep this in mind, blaming does harm people. It, it is weird how complaining can just spread like wildfire. I mean, do not see that on social media. Like one person th- sends out a complaint and it just spreads and spreads. I mean, you see this all the time. If you guys have read the book of Numbers, maybe you heard of Korah and Korah's rebellion. I don't know if you've heard of that story. But Korah, this great, he was a great leader in the camp. He goes to Moses and Aaron. He goes, hey, Moses, hey, Aaron, I don't think you should lead us anymore. I don't think you're a qualified leader. I don't think you're doing a good enough job. We're hungry. We're starving. You're not doing a good job. We've been wandering for a while now, Moses. And if you remember the story of Korah's rebellion, you remember that people who were behind Korah and this rebellion were told that the earth opened up and swallowed them. <laughs> I'm always like, trying to imagine that. It's like they're complaining. It's like earth's like, whoop, and I just swallowed them up. And I think about this and I go, wow, here's a guy who goes and says, I'm, I don't like this. Something's off. Something's not right. And he goes with the spirit of not, of not redemption, but it, this, this complaining spirit. And God even calls it that. And we see how it just spreads to 250 people. And then God's like, no more. This is not going to happen. I'll say, complaining again, it harms people. Not only that, but number two, just because this is very true, complaining harms our witness. It harms our witness. And please hear this one, so that you may become blameless uh, and harmless children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, that you might shine as lights, that you might shine as stars in this world. Here's, Here's the idea. When we're saying, when we're walking around constantly murmuring, grumbling, complaining, and we're like, finally we get to the point where we're like, hey, you should believe in Jesus, man. The goodness and grace of God. They're like, you're a miserable wreck. What are you like, why would I ever want your, you're talking about grace and goodness and love and peace and patience and all these things and all you do is complain. All you do is whine about your life, you don't have enough money, you don't have this. Do we know how much harm it does? He's basically saying this is going to kill your witness. We We have an opportunity to say when people say, Around, guys, let's be honest. The, the culture of our language is complaining. And it's very easy to jump in with them. It's very easy to be at work and you're, they're complaining about the boss. You just want to jump in and join them. But there's something about just someone speaking counter, not trying to be self-righteous about it, but something fi- someone find the redemption in it. Someone who can change the tone, the attitude. You know, if someone asks you how your day is going, people are like kind of amazed. You're like, actually, it's really good, man. I have, I have way more than I deserve. If you said something like that, people are like, what are you talking about? Like, don't talk like that. Like, peop- it's just not normal. But honestly, I think not, it's weird. The opposite of complaining is so powerful. And we'll talk about what that looks like. But it's so powerful. I don't think we realize the power we have in that. Um, I'll put it this way. One Greek philosopher who's not a believer said this to Christians. He said, show me your redeemed lives and I might be inclined to believe in your redeemer. Show me your redeemed lives and I might be inclined to believe in your redeemer. You see, I, I think people are looking like, I want to see if there's something truly different. Do you really have peace? Do you really have joy? Do you really have contentment? Is that really your life? Show me your redeemed life, and, and I might be inclined to believe in your redeemer. I don't think we know how harmful complaining is to our witness to the outside world. I don't think, and he says, in the midst, look at that phrase, in the midst of a broken or crooked and perverse generation. I mean, you think about South Florida. Let's talk about South Florida and the idea of a broken, perverted generation. You think about how we're one of the most highest number when it comes to human trafficking I mean, in the world. You think about what happened recently with 300 people. You think about Robert Kraft and what happened in, in Florida and with human trafficking, sex trafficking. I mean, you think about our, where we live. We have an opportunity, I so believe, to say, you know, South Florida is broken. But the gospel is beautiful and it's restorative and it's redemption. And this is like what we can introduce to people. And we have an opportunity in the midst of this broken and perverse generation to introduce them to Jesus 
to introduce them something more. I don't think any of us, I don't think I myself realize how much. And he says that you might shine as lights in the world. You know, it's interesting, this word lights is this idea of stars or sun. So he says, I want you to shine like the sun, the stars in the sky. And here's why this is important. This is literally the reference Paul is going back to. So if you're a sailor back in this day and it's dark, and how did you travel by boat? You, you travel by looking at the stars, right? The idea was the stars was a navigational aid to get you to your destination among darkness. And he's saying, hey, Christians, amongst a dark world, you can be the navigational aid to get people to their destination, to the right destination. Like amongst darkness where you can't see, you can't go anywhere, you can actually stand out and be like, hey, but there's something different. This person stands out. Maybe this is a good compass for me of life. Maybe this is a good person to look to. Maybe they can help me get through this season of darkness. That is the idea behind that. They might stand out. You might be like lights, he says, in a dark world. Paul put it this way in Colossians 4, if you want to write this verse down. Colossians 4, verse 5, he says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. He goes, be aware of how you're walking around, redeeming the time. Your speech matters. Let it always be with grace, seasoned with salt. It's going to be gracious. It's going to have salt. It's going to have truth. We're not going to shy from truth, but it's going to be done in grace. It's going to be done with this good heart, this good attitude, this tactful approach. He's saying, listen, your speech matters to the outside world. How we talk, how we communicate matters to the outside world. And lastly, listen, complaining harms not just our witness, but honestly, it harms God's reputation. And this is what is so important. When we are complaining, people are saying, so are you telling me your God's not good? Are you telling me your God's not faithful? Are you telling me your God doesn't hear your cries, doesn't hear your prayers? Is that what you're telling me? When we go around constantly complaining, it's like, well, why would I believe in your God? You, seem to be like a, you just seem to be miserable. And it actually is now not determining our witness, but actually God's reputation himself. This was the problem with the nation of Israel. Remember, God's like, I've called you to be a light to the Gentiles. And what they do, they constantly complain about their God and their situation. And they were not the light to the Gentiles they're supposed to be. I've written down like a few. Like, there's over 15. I've written down a few, and, and we're going to throw these, some of these verses up here for you. Um, these are not direct quotes, but this is the idea. Do you want to see how, much time, how many times they complain? The book of Numbers is sometimes called the book of murmurs, and I think it's very true. Uh, this is what they ask Moses many times. Why did you take us here to starve? Exodus 16.2. There's no water here to drink. Exodus 17. This guy who dragged us out of Egypt, where is he? Numbers, or Exodus 32. Numbers 11. Everyone took to complaining, it says. Numbers 11.4. We haven't had meat in a while, and there's the fish and the cucumbers and the leeks. Where is it? They're complaining about the bread, and we'll talk about that. Numbers 14.2, they're complaining about just dying in Egypt, or they wish they went back to Egypt. Numbers 14.3, they complain again. Numbers 14.10, number 16, the rebellion of Korah. Numbers 20, there's no water here. There's no pomegranates. Numbers 21, why have you brought us out of Egypt in the wilderness to die? I mean, over and over again, over and over again, all they do is complain. They're complaining against Moses, against God, against their situation. They go, we'd rather be slaves in Egypt. We'd rather be slaves than be just wandering this wilderness. And it is killing their reputation and witness to the outside world about their God. And here's why this is so important for us. I mean, you and I have an opportunity in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of a world that's constantly complaining, constantly dissatisfied. Social media just is in all of our lives nonstop, 24 hours, it seems like it's in everyone's face. And we have an opportunity to not, to not join them in that, but to have this redemptive conversation with them, this redemptive interaction with them, to show them that we have a hope that does not disappoint that we actually have an opportunity to be lights in this dark, dark world. So here's my question. How do we conquer complaining? How do we conquer complaining? And I, I want you just to like, we'll just walk through this slowly. 
How do we conquer this? First thing, first thing is true for all of us. Recognize, you're going to hate me, recognize you're the problem. <laughs> recognize I'm the problem. Honestly. I complain because I, I'm not sad, like me. I want this, I'm not getting this. I want this person to behave the way I want them to behave, and it's just me trying to create my world and trying to be my God. And I mean, com- I mean really complaining goes back to just, it's, not, it's, it's a dissatisfaction ultimately with us, with Christ. And you see, re- we first got to recognize what the problem. Number two is this. How do we replace this? We replace this with rejoicing. I mean, that's really it. I mean, and you read First, Thel- first Thessalonians 5. Paul says, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God. In everything, not for everything, give thanks. But in everything, give thanks. In everything I need to give, this is the will of God. How do I rejoice? How do I hear complaining happening in the church on the outside? And how do I just rejo- how do I bring redemption to that? How do I offer rejoicing in that? I mean, again, the issue is not a complaining issue. What does Jesus say? He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So complaining is not this complaining problem. That person's complaining problem. Ultimately, they have this heart problem that's dissatisfied with Christ, their life. I'm speaking these things because my heart is wicked. When I complain, Josiah's heart is wicked. I need to not just cater and say, stop complaining. It's not just that. It's like I need to get to the heart of the issue. And how do we do that? Thirdly, listen, remember the cross. Remember the cross. I think the greatest way to get to the root of complaining is remember the cross. Who for the joy that was set before Jesus, it says he endured the cross. There's not this complaining spirit or attitude. When I remember the cross, it just, here's, here's what the cross reminds me of. I look at the cross and I say, that should be me. See, the, the gospel, the Bible tells us this. I am more of a sinner and I'm more wicked than I think I am. And Christ is way better than I think he is. Can I tell you what the cross does? The cross says, you and I, we're not that good of people. The cross tells us our sin deserves death and punishment. I mean, the cross humbles us, but then it also elevates us to the same breath, and it says, but you know what? You're way more loved than you think you are. But you know what? You're way more cherished than you think you are. The cross reminds me <laughs> that I'm a sinner and that I'm absolutely loved by God at the same time. Do we get that? It's like Josiah dies and Christ is lifted up, and that's what needs to happen. Remember the cross. Uh, one author said it this way. He said, one, listen, one of the most common failures of Christians who have lost sight of the wonder of God's grace is the tendency to complain. Those who have the tendency to complain, he says, is because you've lost sight of God's grace. When you lose sight of God's grace, that's when you begin to complain. If you hear complainers, it's not that, oh, they're just complainers, and that's just, they'll, for, all, they'll, for always be that way. But it's like, no, they just lost sight of grace in this moment. They lost sight of God's, the wonder of God's grace in this moment. You know, Lamentations has the most unique verse that I had to like stop and think about. I read this in one commentary, and I was like, wait, it says that? Lamentations 3, verse 29 and so, or 39 says this, why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? In view of my sins, I have no right to complain. In, the, in view of the fact that my sins have been forgiven and paid for, why should any living mortal offer complaint? I have no right. I have no right. I mean, everything I deserve took place on that cross. That should have been me. And yet now I get to live with resurrected power in my life because of what Jesus has taken from me. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. And here's why this is so important. And this is kind of what I want you guys to see big picture, big picture of the Bible. Let's talk about big picture of the Bible. Big picture of the Bible is God is, I'm redeeming you and I'm saving you, nation of Israel. You're not going to be slaves in Egypt. Come on. And Moses comes and rescues them. And then they're immediately complaining. I mean, daily they're complaining. All the time they're complaining. One specific story is in Numbers 11, and I just want you to hear this. It says their complaint, Numbers 11, one says their complaint aroused God's anger. 
And they're complaining us, saying, we wish we stayed in Egypt and just died in Egypt rather than wandering in this wilderness. And here's Numbers 11, verse 5. Here's what they said. They said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish, fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Wow, that sounds great. Uh, but now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Here's, I want to hear this. They go, oh, we had like garlic, man, and onions. It's great. All there's now before us is just this manna. What is manna? Remember what manna is? Manna is just heavenly bread. It's, it's, it's the Bible describes it as like, it's like circular, it's white. It tastes almost like this honey flavor is like how it puts it. Hev- manna was literally he- bread from heaven. It's like angel food cake. That's what it was. It was like literally just like incredible bread that appeared daily. It appeared daily. And they're going, oh, we're so sick of this heavenly bread that appears out of nowhere, God. He's like, what the heck? Like, what are you? And they're complaining against the bread from heaven. And here's why this is so important. Fast forward to John chapter 6. And if you would, turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. I want you to see this. John chapter 6. What we see happening is we just constantly repeat history. John 6 verse 35. John 6 verse 35. We're going to read a few different verses. John 6 verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Say amen. Verse 41. The the Jews then complained. Look at verse 41. The Jews then complained about Jesus because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Verse 48. Jesus said again, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. (laughs) This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. He said, your fathers ate heavenly bread, manna, they ate this heavenly bread and they're dead. They ate this heavenly bread and they complained about it every day. And Jesus goes, I'm the bread of life. And they complained, John 6, 41. He's like, your fathers complained when there's heavenly bread. I'm the heavenly bread. They complained. They're literally repeating what their fathers did. He goes, no, 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 if you don't get it though. If you eat of me, you'll never die. If you eat of me, you'll live. The idea of you'll never die is yes, you'll physically die, but there'll never be death, death. The idea of that will never be eternal death, eternal separation from God. He goes, you believe on me, you eat of me, you shall live. I love how Jesus pulls from this Old Testament story. That's what he's doing in John 6. And he said, remember the manna? Remember the heavenly bread they complained about? I'm the heavenly bread and you're complaining about me. And he said, yet if you just eat of me, you'd live. And if you guys remember in John 6, John chapter 6, verse 66, it says many walked away. Many walked away that day. They didn't like that. They couldn't handle that. Here's, again, why this is so important for us. Here we are today with a new opportunity to eat of this heavenly bread in a sense. Jesus is still saying the same thing. Hey, I'm the bread of life. If you eat of me, you shall live. Our hearts can complain and say, that's too simple. I don't like that. There's no way it's that easy. There's no way that Jesus is, is this bread from heaven that will satisfy me forever. There's no way. Or our hearts have a tendency just to find fault with it and complain against it. And he's saying, listen, your father's complained. And John 6, 41, you're not, now you're complaining. Church, here's an opportunity for us to say, hey, listen, taste and see that Jesus is good. Eat, eat. And we can say, yeah, I want to eat. I want to enjoy. I want to know that if I can, and not just one time, I want to partake of Christ in a sense daily. I want to know him daily. I want to internalize him. I want to take him into my life daily. And there's a side of this, he goes, you'll never hunger. You'll, you'll never thirst. 
I am the bread from heaven. If you eat of me, you will live. And so for us today, we are going to take communion because it's just so fitting. It's so fitting. And it's funny because I know some of you are like, well, we took it to communion two weeks ago. Don't complain. This is great. This is great. We can say there's heavenly bread that is to offer from Jesus. There is this heavenly manna that if you believe on Jesus, whom the Father has sent, you will live. What shall we do that we might have eternal life? That you believe on me, whom the Father has sent, Jesus said. Believe on Jesus. Partake of Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to end with some worship in just a second. We are going to pass out communion in just a second. Here's the thing. If you believe in Jesus, take this communion. Enjoy him. Remember that he's this heavenly bread from, he- from heaven. Remember that he shed his blood for forgiveness of sins. Enjoy the person of Jesus. If you do not believe in Jesus, please, there's no need to take communion. Why remember something you don't even believe in? But if you're here and you say, no, no, I believe this. I believe what Jesus said here. I want to partake of this. I want to eat of him. Then eat. Then eat. <laughs> I really do believe. Like Partake. Say, Jesus, you are the bread from heaven that will satisfy me forever. No money, not enough power, not enough sex. Nothing will satisfy me more than you, Jesus. I'm eating of you because I believe that you're the bread of life that will satisfy me for eternal life. And so we want to say, that take and eat. Call upon Jesus. Enjoy Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. In just a second, we're going to pass out communion. You're going to get the elements, this bread, this little cracker, and this little cup. Please take some time to pray over it. Say, God, thank you for the life you've given me. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for me to shed his blood for my sins. Thank him, praise him, and then partake when you're ready in your seat. And then we're going to have some time of worship. Then just worship, join in and worship. And then I'm going to come up here and just close our time with some prayer and just with some closing thoughts. Can we do that? I'm going to pray. We're going to take communion and let our hearts rejoice for the provision God has given us. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for this truth. We thank you, God, that even though we complained the first time you sent bread from heaven, we thank you that you again sent bread from heaven. And we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you, God, um, just for the life, the sacrifice he gave for us so we could live. God, I just ask, as we, as we take communion, as we take of you, Jesus, we do it in faith, We do it believing and knowing Jesus, not the bread that saves us or this little cup, but Jesus, it's your body you gave and the blood you shed. And we just want to thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We want to thank you for your body you've given us, God. God, our hearts today, we ask that we'd be a people that rejoice. We'd be a people, God, um, that can be blameless and harmless, that we would not join in on those conversations, that our speech would be with grace, seasoned with salt, Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit take your word today and drive it deep into our hearts and in my heart. And God, not for the sake of not complaining, but for the sake of being a light in this dark world. And we just ask these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.